turn to the second chapter of the book of Revelation. And our introduction to the seven churches here in the book of Revelation. Now, as we go through this study tonight, I want to remind you that the reason we're doing an introduction here is because if you keep what we get tonight in view for all seven churches, then you get the full meaning, I believe, of what the Lord intended as He, in essence... Uh, took time to dictate these letters to John, and John wrote them down. Remember, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's coming from Jesus Christ. If you have a red-letter Bible, you're going to notice that these words are all in red. Uh, These are the words of the Lord. So these are not the words of John. So they're authored uh, in the Holy Spirit. John, in essence, is the scribe. He writes them down. And there are seven churches that are now going to be addressed one at a time. We're going to take the Church of Ephesus tonight uh, as a way of example, a way for us to segue into all seven churches. We'll actually cover this church in its entirety next week. But in our introduction tonight, we're really going to look at this format for all seven churches, why it is the way it is, what we can glean from it, how to then apply these truths to each of the seven churches, and to look at all the time periods necessary the, the, both the practical, the perennial, and the prophetic as we look at the three ways these things can be interpreted. And so we're going to establish all of that tonight. We're going to also look at each individual church tonight in a way that we can say, okay, this, this applies to this group of people, this applies to all of us today, and this applies to a specific group of people in the future, a specific time in the church's history. And so tonight, our introduction, and let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together. Lord, has already been prayed here in the middle of the week to seek your face, uh, to grow in the knowledge of you. And Lord, we pray that you'd impart your truth to us. Lord, it not be my words, but yours that make it into our hearts. And so God, uh, we give you this time. pray that you would now use it for our enrichment, for our growth in you. Lord, that we would know what the Spirit would say. Lord, not just to the seven churches but to us as this church tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 here, and we're going to take the first seven verses, and notice the format. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, and so the Lord Jesus names a specific church. That church will be indicative of three parts, both the practical, in other words, the church of that day, the perennial, the church in the world throughout all of history, and the church prophetically, a specific period of time in the history of the church. So each of the seven churches will have those component parts to it. So there will be things that we'll find here that will be practical to the church of Ephesus. There will be things that we'll find here that will be practical to the church throughout all of time, through the entire church age, and things very specific in a prophetic sense, writing to Ephesus and its mission on this earth, the Ephesian church. And so he says, these things, says he who holds the seven stars. Remember last week we got those interpreted for us. Those would be the pastors, the messengers of the seven churches. We know who they are by what was being said. Holds the seven stars in his right hand. And and thank you, Jesus, that is true. Any pastor that thinks that he has a message that's his own, uh, is sorely and sadly mistaken. Were it not for the Lord holding us in his hand and giving us a message to preach, this would be a useless waste of time gathering here together tonight. If these were simply for a motivational speech given by some dude, uh, some dudette, some person, some human, uh, we should all go home and watch soap operas or something because it would be about as useful. But this is the word of the Lord to a specific church through a specific person. And so he says, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And remember, we were told specifically the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so the pastors of the seven churches, the Lord holds both the pastor and the church, and the Lord walks in their midst. Get the picture as we go forward. He's giving us very specific details about how he operates in the world, in the church, both then, in the church age in general, and all the way into the coming of the Lord. I know your works, he says, I know your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, 
And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. But nevertheless, I have this against you. So he begins most of these letters with two very specific things, normally something that's good about the church and something that's not good about the church, something the church is accomplishing in a wonderful sense that's a work of the Spirit and something that needs some severe help, growth, and so he gives them both an encouragement and an admonition. Remember those things. He's going to speak both the things that are good and the things that are bad. What is the work of the Holy Spirit in the world? To convict of sin... And of righteousness, amen, gives us the bad news. You've got to have the bad news of man's condition in order to receive the good news of salvation, amen? If you don't know you're a sinner, you don't know you need a Savior. It's real easy to understand that. And so he's going to give the good news, and he's going to give the bad news. This is a reverse order because he's writing to people who are already saved. To the unsaved person, the bad news always comes first, and to the saved person, usually the good news comes first. God's in the business of encouraging the church. He always tries to encourage. Sometimes there's not much to encourage, amen? You probably all know Christians that there's not very much that you can encourage about their life because they're not living for the Lord. But in this case, speaking of the church age throughout time, he's going to be able to find something, generally speaking, that is good, and then he's going to correct something in the church. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen... And then that dreaded word that nobody in all of Christendom likes to hear, repent, repent, and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. That's a pretty harsh statement. Who is the lampstand? That's the church, specifically this church, the church at Ephesus. He said, if you don't turn around from where you are currently going and back to the things which you first did, I am going to take your church out of the world. I'm going to remove you. Because a heretical church is actually more dangerous than people who don't go to church at all. Can I say that to you? A heretical church is actually more dangerous than people not going to church at all. Because people assume that a church belongs to the Lord. And because it assumed, people assume that, then that heresy then becomes what they believe is the right way to go. And all of a sudden, the church itself is encouraging people to not be who Jesus Christ is, do what Jesus Christ does, and say what Jesus Christ says. That's why we have so many problems in our world today with the church in general. Some of the largest foes to Jesus Christ are the church. hate to say that, but it's true. Because the church is in the business of proclaiming Christ. And when you stop proclaiming Christ, the Lord's going to remove that lampstand eventually. The reason I'm taking this time in this first one is so we get these principles, so that when we look at the rest of them, we can go, ah, there it is. That's what's trying to be said here. And so he goes on and says, again, repeats, unless you repent. So repentance is a huge thing in the life of the church. Amen? Something we can glean right off the get-go. And remember, there will be something for that church, something for the church as a whole throughout all of the church age, and something prophetically speaking to the history of that particular group of people throughout time. All three pieces need to be looked at simultaneously. He says, but this you have. So he goes back and gives them another encouragement. Something in the good column. It's kind of like the Lord Jesus has, has kept his records in heaven. And he says, well, you were pretty good at this. And then you stopped doing that. You failed at this. You need to return to those things. And he said, no, by the way, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And I'm not going to expound on that this week because we're going to do that next week. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now notice that churches is plural. And that's why we're using these seven verses as the introduction. We'll also use them as the basis for our study on the church of Ephesus. But he says, to the churches, he who has ear. He's saying, not saying if you have ears, is he? He's not saying if you have ears. He's saying, for those of you that hear spiritually, for those of you that are in tune to what the Lord says, for those of you who can understand what God is saying, listen up. Because not everybody can do that, right? Doesn't our Bible say that those who 
do not know the Lord. Their minds are carnal minds and they cannot know the things of God. So he's not speaking to the carnal mind. He's speaking to the church. He's saying, look, church, listen up. These words are for you. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And so these verses kind of form now our backdrop. And this message is very timely. It's also timeless. Uh, and, and as I'm looking at these notes in front of me today, there's all kinds of things that we could pick out. But we need to remember that these are not the words of man. They're not the words of John. These are the words of Jesus, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written down in one sense, in, in the sense that, that we're sitting here tonight, we can say that they were spoken to John. In other words, John heard them first. And so they were a message for John. But they're also a message for the church from John to now. They're a message for this church. So they're absolutely as ancient as old John. would be, you know, 2,000 years old right now, wouldn't he? They're as ancient as John, but they're as modern as us and our smartphones. You know, how many of us in this room right now tonight have a smartphone on us? It's probably most of us, amen? I think most of us probably have a smartphone. Well, some of us have dumb phones. Dumb phones are okay, too. But, yeah, Gary's got a dumb phone. Thank you, Jesus, for dumb phones. There are a whole lot less trouble. But but in that sense, on those smartphones, we might actually have Bible. I have a Bible app on mine. Probably most of you do on yours. You're going to go, oh, wow, you know, I've got King James and NIV, and I've got, you know, all kinds of notes on there, and I can look at it. But you know what's interesting? Is the truth is still the truth. So when I pull up Revelation chapter 2 on my smartphone that wasn't even invented until about 13 years ago, Think on that for a second. It was only about 13 years ago that smartphones came into existence in mass to where the average person could have one. And now you can have your Bible on there, and I've got calendars on mine. You probably all use them as your MP3 players. They do all kinds of stuff. And so that message is as timeless as John, and it's as timely in our generation as being able to take it. It's still the truth on your smartphone. Amazing message. So as we embark on the study, we're going to be seeing these time periods, seven time periods, and it's kind of a panorama looking from John's time, really all the way to the rapture of the church. So we've still got some of this left. How much? I don't believe much. A little tiny sliver towards the very end is where we're at. So all of that 2,000 years of church history up until today, roughly, we've got a little tiny sliver left. And everything that was applicable then is applicable now, and it's just about to get brought to a conclusion. And we'll see the seven time periods as we go through uh, these studies of these churches. Now, I'm putting this up here for a reason. Those of you that have smartphones, you can take a picture if you want. But if you look at these these charts, and the reason I did this, there's all kinds of diversity in these things, and I don't want you to get hung up on it. And so I put together this this table behind me, and if you look at it, i got Tim LaHaye up there in, in the far corner, and he is largely, I believe, probably the person I would, you know, cling to the most as far as a general outline. But if you look at these, he's looking at all the church periods. There's Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And as you look at these, they've assigned some time periods to them. That's 80, 30 to 80, 100. And the last one over here is 80, 1900 to the tribulation. Okay, so that's the entirety of the history of the church. So when you look at these seven churches, where are we? Well, we're basically someplace in this general vicinity because we're seeing the things that were true in Thyatira still be true in the church today, the things that are true in Sardis still being true in the church today, the things in Philadelphia still true today, and definitely the things of Laodicea still true today. And so when you think of these churches, don't think of them just as those ancient churches, but think of them as ways for you to look at the church all that it does, all that it's ever done, everything it will ever be, all the way to the time when the Lord says, hey, it's time for you all to go, sounds the trumpet, comes and gets the church, and then the final week of Daniel's prophecy, what we know as the tribulation, begins, and it will culminate at the end of the tribulation period with the second coming of the Lord. And so when you look at these seven churches, think of them that way. Broaden your horizons Think of exactly what the Lord's trying to say to us. 
when I, I, I talked to Pastor Chuck one time, and he was kind of talking about loosely about how he thought about these churches. Basically, he said the Ephesian church was the early church until the death of John. Okay, so he figured that John saw. Okay, we got that in our outline there in verse 19 of chapter 1. Then the church of Smyrna, the second, the fourth centuries during the Roman persecutions. Uh, you, you're going to see these things as we look at the conditions that are listed in each one of these letters. Just go, wow, they, they were slaughtered. Uh, you, you have all these problems, and we'll highlight them as we go through them. Then the Pergamite period, beginning about 316, the development of the state church system, which all of you have heard the name Augustine. He would be during that period of time where there was actually a state-run church. And that began. And so you can begin to see that the Tyran period was kind of the unrepentant and unfaithful church. And that certainly continues today. Uh, the Sardinian period, I think, is easy, easily uh, aligned with Protestantism. Well, Protestantism happened, began in about the mid-1500s, right? So 500 years or so ago. But there's a lot of dead Protestant churches today, and there's getting some more dead ones, especially here in America. You can go down a list of the names of, of, the, of the Protestant churches, denominational churches that have rejected the finished work of Jesus Christ. They have gone to universal salvation. They do not believe that the word of God is actually to be taken literally. You could go line by line by line and see that there absolutely is a Sardinian church in the world today. The Philadelphian church. There's a lot of churches, and you all know them that preach so much the love of God that they don't preach the holiness of God to go with it. That there's absolutely no attention to trying to live your life sinlessly as we're supposed to, as close to sinless as we can get. There's only attention to, well, just love everybody, brother. Well, it's not loving to not confront sin. So there is a Philadelphian church in the world today. And then finally, the church of Laodicea. You, you can see the lukewarm church, the church that basically isn't hot, isn't cold. It's a place where people go. You're more likely to go play bingo than you are to hear a Bible study. That church is still in the world today. And so as you look at these churches, the way that we're going to apply them are these three ways. Practically, they were conditions that existed at that time. Those churches that were being written to, the church at Ephesus, had a problem. They started out great, but they lost their first love. They were no longer in love with Jesus. They weren't in love with people. And so they rejected that truth. You're going to see that there, there are churches that have existed in this way perennially. And that word, when we say perennial stream or a perennial flower, that's something that comes up in the right season, right? Okay, so when we talk perennial, perennially about these churches, that means in their season these things were true. So there was a period of time when this was the biggest portion of the church age. In other words, a, a group of churches that say, for instance, like we live in today, are lukewarm. There's never been a time in human history when more of the church was lukewarm than right now. This is the most lukewarm era of the church age. Where Christians are wandering around, well, you know, I don't really know if I really, you know, that Jesus thing, you know. I mean, don't all roads lead to heaven? You have Catholics saying that. You have all manner of Protestant denominations saying that very same thing, that all roads lead to heaven. Lutheran Church in America is saying that. The Episcopalian Church is saying that. Some forms of Presbyterianism are saying that. There are all Baptist churches are even buying in some of the more less or less conservative Branches of the Baptist Church are even saying, well, you know, we all believe in the same God and blah, 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 blah. That's lukewarmness. Because Jesus said, I came to actually divide. Now, it doesn't mean that we are divisive, but his truth is his truth. If he is the way and the truth and the life, and no one goes to the Father but through him, you kind of can't cancel Jesus out, amen? And so what Jesus is saying is that there's going to come a perennial period of time when there's going to be a marked increase in lukewarmness. And then finally, prophetically, conditions that would mark the history of the church with finiteness. In other words, once that period was done, that period was done. And we're going to see how that historically the church has gone through intense persecution like it's basically never had. We're experiencing persecution now, but nothing like happened under the Roman Caesars. 
Yeah, we go through persecution. There are Christians being persecuted right now, but they're not being killed by the millions. Thousands? Yes. Maybe even tens of thousands, but not millions. And certainly not for sport. Yes, we have some radical Islamists that are taking it upon themselves to try and uh, pretend that they're like the Roman Caesars, but they don't have anything on the Roman Caesars. And so there will be a prophetic period of time spoken about in each one of these things. And so these letters to the seven churches will look at each one of them that way. And so as we evaluate these things, let's look at a few things before we move on. You can take these things as immediate. So in Ephesus there was a problem, it was addressed. You, you can take all of these things as a, as a type. In other words, there's something that is unique and yet specific enough that you could say that throughout history, here's this thing to be dealt with. It's also good to remember that as you look at these things, during the course of the history of the church, there's always been these types of problems in the church. In other words, there's still a little of Ephesus left, and there's a whole lot of Laodicea left. Everybody got that? And so you can see those things that way, kind of in, in what we would call a typology. And then thirdly and finally, there, these are written so that the church actually hears the message. So there have been times throughout history when the message the church needs to hear or the message a specific church needs to hear is, you guys need to get back to the first thing, which is being about Jesus. Okay? So you have to keep that in mind as we go through all of these churches. If you don't, then you get lost in all the little details, and before you know it, you're trying to find, you know, well, okay, well, what period of time was that because that ended then? It didn't end then. All of these seven churches will go from day one to the final day. All of these churches will be typed in the various things that are happening in the world throughout all that time. And prophetically, as you go through them, they are also all going to come to a conclusion at some point in time because God will be done with that particular action. As you look at these things, I love what Joseph Seiss said about it. He wrote a three-volume set. If you want to get it, it's called The Apocalypse, Lectures on the Book of Revelation. It was written in 1884. Uh, it's about 1,230 pages, uh, but it's probably the best work there is on this subject. But he said this, and I, and I love exactly this. Is, remember, this was written over 100 years ago. Today, he used the word today. There are Protestant papists, papatistical Protestants, sectarian anti-sectarians, partyists who are not schismatic, holy ones who are in the midst of abounding defection and apostasy, unholy ones in the midst of earnest and active faith, light in dark places and darkness in the midst of light. Amen. That is why these letters are still absolutely pertinent to the church today. Because those things which were true a hundred years ago were true also two thousand years ago. And those things which were true two thousand years ago are still true today. This is the Lord speaking. That's why he says, those who have ears hear what the Lord says to the seven churches. Take it in. And he's not talking about you just using these things. He's talking about you using this and this. Amen? Both heart and head. Hearing it with the Spirit. Why did he write to these seven churches? Because there was a local church that he was writing to. He was giving them a local admonition. In other words, here, this is the problem in your church. He was using it in a way of homily or homiletics. In other words, the study of delivering the message. That's what that word means. He says, he, it applies to you. It applies to me. It's not just for the church at Ephesus. It's not for the prophetic window of churches that kind of look like the church of Ephesus. And it isn't just the Ephesian church throughout all of church time. The message to the church at Ephesus is the message to Jeff. I need to hear what God was saying to that church. It was homiletic. It was also prophetic. In other words, it speaks to a particular order, the way the history of the church would be laid out. It also does something that is very important to us right now because we live towards the end of the age of grace, and that is it fills in the picture of what the church will look like when we get very near the Lord's return. Daniel's 70th week, that little gap there when the Messiah would be cut off and there's going to be this existence of this thing called the church and then the church age is going to end when the trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ are raised. 
snatched away by force. They fill in that gap. And so this is a history from A.D. 33 or so, 30 years, the first 30 years of the church, and it takes us all the way to the second coming, which is still yet future for us. So these churches are the entirety of church history. I want to give you a definition of prophecy. It's found in Isaiah 46, uh, verses 9 through 11. It's one that some of you have been here before and you've heard me use, and I just think it's so perfect because these are the words of the Lord written to the prophet Isaiah, so written in about 686 B.C. He's writing concerning that, and it says there in verse 9, Remember the former things of old, for I am God. There is no other. I am God, and there's none like me. He goes on to say in verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning. Only God can do that. Because God outside of space, outside of time, looks at the entirety of space and time that we live in. He can see the beginning. He can see the end perfectly. He's not bound in time. He can be all places and all times at once. And so he can declare the end from the beginning. Why do you think Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega? He's bearing witness to exactly what Isaiah was given. I know the beginning. I know the end. And he goes on to, to state even further from ancient times the things that are not yet done. That's very specific. In other words, there will be things contained within the Word of God that God would speak ahead of them actually happening. Ancient things that have not happened yet. And as we unfold, can you imagine? I know most of us uh, have grown up after the time. There are a few in this room that, that were actually alive when Israel became a nation again. That fulfilled Ezekiel 37. Up until 1948, that prophecy stood unfulfilled, but now Israel is back in the land. There is meat and sinew back on the bones. The bones are risen. They are in their own land, speaking their own language for the first time in 2,000 years. That's an example of things being spoken of by Ezekiel the prophet. 500 years B.C., and it coming true nearly 2,500 years later. But it was spoken of by Ezekiel the prophet, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. The Lord can't be thwarted in that regard. Verse 11, he says, Calling the bird of prey from the east. In other words, this is a direct reference, by the way, to Cyrus the Mede. He was known as the bird of prey from the east. Cyrus the Mede, who actually set the Jewish people free, it was because of him that they actually that Ezra and Nehemiah went back to rebuild the gates of Jerusalem. And yet it hadn't happened yet. Calling the man who execute, executes my counsel from a far country. Can you imagine a Mede or a Persian at the time coming to Babylon, their sworn mortal enemy, to free a Jewish cupbearer? to go back and oversee a construction project 1,200 miles away in the land of Canaan. Only God could do that, and yet he did. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Focus of all of that is God. So these words that we read in the letters to the seven churches are exactly that. They're prophetic Peter would go on uh, to say much the same thing in Second Peter chapter 1, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't something that mankind concocted, in other words. It's not just some fanciful story made up by the church. And he goes on to tell us, what, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, Peter saw Jesus. He says, we saw him. We talked to him. We knew who he was. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came and said in the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That was the words of God from heaven that Peter heard about Jesus Christ the Son. Those were not words that mankind could concoct. And so he went on, goes on to say, And we heard this voice coming from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. When Jesus was transfigured and he went up into heaven, these guys stood there and heard those words with their own ears. It wasn't something somebody told them. It was something they heard for themselves. He would go on to say in verse 19 there of Second Peter chapter 1, And so we have a prophetic word confirmed, because Jesus also spoke to those same disciples the Sermon on the Mount. Those same disciples 
the all of that discourse, Matthew chapter 24, saying that, beware, for in the last days you will hear of wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes in diverse places. Jesus spoke those words within earshot of Peter, and Peter is now saying, I heard him speak those prophetic things. They will come to pass because I didn't write them down. They were written down by the hand of God in essence. Which you do well to heed as a light as it shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. In other words, he's saying, look, God authored these things. They came from him. So when we speak them to you, it's not us. It's him. So all this stuff that we're reading, it's not from John. It's from Jesus. And it is a message to the entire church age. As he writes these things, basically what he's reminding us of is this. For no prophecy, verse 21 would go on to say, came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God. I would also remind you that prophecy is obviously important to God because about a third, almost 28% or so, of your entire Bible is prophetic in nature. So a lot of people look at it, well, no, it's just Revelation and, well, maybe Daniel and Ezekiel. Not that at all. Genesis has prophetic passages in it. Deuteronomy has prophetic passages in it. Exodus has prophetic passages in it. There are whole books Daniel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and of course the New Testament books that we all know, Revelation, Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd, all prophetic in nature. God's speaking forth truth about things that no one could have known at that time, that many of them, speaking of the last days, the very last days, still have not yet come true, but because everything else God has spoken prophetically, about the life, birth, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus has come true. About the resurrection of the nation Israel has already come true. About what would happen in the very last days and what the world would look like, much of it already underway. So we have no reason to not believe what remains. We have to get that. Because it's going to get real specific. The book of Revelation is the most specific of all of the apocalyptic books. It says stuff that when it was written, can, I can't even imagine what, it, what would have happened if a person then picked it up and you're reading about fire falling on the earth and the heavens being rent and all these things that would have then been, you know, that's just fanciful dreams. Well, we can now look at some of those things in a little bit different light and say, hmm, maybe not so. We now know that we're virtually every second of every day you know, one asteroid from destruction. Amen? It's absolutely true. We've had multiple near-Earth near events in the last 10 years to where there have been a change in course of a degree or two in the size of an asteroid that's the size of downtown Manhattan hitting this Earth would literally be an extinction-level event here on this Earth. It would wipe all of us off the face of the Earth. And yet we sit around and go, oh, that can't happen. Sure it can God could do that very easily because he's God. So let's look through these things. i give you all three views here and just give you the highlights of each one of them. So the first of these three views, the, the practical view, Ephesus was basically the formal church. It was the first church, and actually it was the head church of all of the churches in, in Asia Minor. And so if you want to look at it that way, it's kind of like we just use Calvary Chapel as an example. Okay, Ephesus would be Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. It's kind of where it all began with Pastor Chuck. And then from out of that would grow other churches, and some of those churches would also become very, very large. But there was a first church. That was the church at Ephesus. It was the church where Paul spent much of his time. Amen? He actually founded that church. He would go away. Three years later, he would write the letter that we have that's called the letter to the church at Ephesus that the Apostle Paul wrote. It's one of the defining letters of the New Testament. Talks about the incredible riches that we have in Christ Jesus. Amen. So Ephesus was the kind of the formal church. It was the it was the headquarter church, if you will. 
Uh, what was water became a tract of land, and what was land became a tract of water. There was, you know, it's all kinds of crazy things that happened in Ephesus there in modern-day Turkey. Uh, it was very strong in its love for the Lord, but it eventually drifted away completely into non-existence, by the way. There is no church of Ephesus. So what we will see next week as we study it in its entirety is absolutely true. Jesus said, if you do not change... I will remove your lampstand. Ephesus is not there. It's gone. There hasn't been a church at Ephesus for almost 2,000 years. The church at Smyrna, very fearful church. It was the birthplace of Homer. You all know the Homer of Ulysses fame. Uh, the, the, epic, the epics of Homer are Greek literature at its finest. He's the one that, you know, they're going to travel over the Alps and take elephants over them. Uh, but it ended up being kind of a satellite of Rome. And so th- there was a lot of time during that city uh, that it existed that it was just kind of hanging on by a thread. And eventually at about 660 uh, A.D., uh, it would also be destroyed completely. But it began clear back in 600 B.C. It was a very strong, powerful city. And it would eventually become an autonomous province that was ruled by the Greeks. And it would actually be the center uh, of the Greek empire for a while. But in order to keep peace, it basically didn't stand for anything. And so it was a fearful church. Just, well, we don't want to make those guys mad. We don't want to make these guys mad. And so basically everything was okay. Whatever it was, you could do it in Smyrna. Thyatira was the the unrepentant or the faithless church, if you want to look at it that way. Uh, Again, as you look at that particular church, uh, it it grew, in a sense, by standing for nothing, always. It's like if you were involved in that church, didn't really matter what you did, didn't matter what you say, didn't matter how you lived, you could kind of do all those things. Uh, Pergamos was a, was a church that we would call one that's, that's kind of a faltering church. It was a church, in essence, in a university town. It was a Greek university town, to be, to be very concise. It was also a cathedral city. There was a very large temple there uh, dedicated to uh, Akalepsos, which is Akalepsos. If you've ever seen the medical symbol that we use for doctors, it's got the little serpent on the pole and the wreath and all that. That was actually the symbol of the university town. Uh, of Pergamos, and it was there that many medical practices which were would not be advanced until the 1800s were actually originally uh, brought forth into the medical world. But it, it became a place to where God was just kind of kicked out of the public square. And so he's going to say about them that they were the place where Satan's throne exists. It's where Satan dwells. Uh, there was an enormous altar to Zeus in that city. Uh, and so that city ultimately ended up being bequeathed to the Caesars, and Julius Caesar completely destroyed it. It was ruled over for a period of time uh, by the Roman uh, standard of just gladi, which is basically ruled over by the sword. And so it, it became completely uh, faltering in everything that it stood for. Sardis was just a fruitless church. Uh, it, it was a fabulous, wealthy city, much like Ephesus was. Uh, it had mountains to the south of it. It had coastal significance. Uh, Sardis's history was one of very tarnished glory. Basically, if you were to go there during that period of time, you would find no evidence that there were any believers there, and yet there was a church there because there was no fruit. People didn't share their faith, just like they were kind of wrapped up in the world. Uh, Philadelphia was the, the feeble church of the, of the time. It was a missionary city. Uh, it was founded to kind of promote unity. It was on the crossroads of several, several roads in both the Roman and the Greek Empire. It was on the road south from Greece heading towards uh, Jerusalem during that time. It was also on the eastern road that headed over to, to what we would call modern-day Turkey, which was then uh, the, the province of the Babylonians. It would have to travel through the Assyrian provinces. And so it was one of those churches that, you know, it was kind of weak because it, it, had, it was in a multicultural environment. And much like we see today, a lot of times the church kind of takes on the flavor of, of the place that it exists. And because of that, it's not very strong. There's a lot of compromise in that type of a church. It's like we don't want to get anybody upset. And so during that period of time, 
Uh, it, it was said of that particular church, and it, we'll see it in chapter 3, that it has the key of David. It opens and no man shuts. It shuts and no, man's, no man opens. Emperor Vespasian and Tiberius Caesar, both of them captured that city because in controlling Philadelphia, you could control the trade to the entire Middle East. And so the church didn't want to get in the way because there was tax money to be had. There was business enterprises to be under, entertained. So they compromised everything and were just feeble. They were basically non-existent. And then the final church, the church of Laodicea, the seventh church, uh, absolutely renowned for its prosperity. More than once that city has recovered from disaster. It was destroyed by uh, earthquake in AD 62, so roughly 30 years after these words were written, completely obliterated. But it was so wealthy, it was the only city in the entire Middle East that had enough wealth within itself that it did not need the help of Rome to be rebuilt. And in fact, the Laodiceans refused it, and their common slogan was, we have need of nothing. You're going to see that. Jesus will actually use those very words. That was common, spoken then. It was also a place where if you bought and sold gold, you wanted to go to Laodicea because it was said of the Laodiceans they were honest in their trade of gold because they didn't want anybody to think that anyone else's gold was better than Laodicean gold. So when they traded in gold, their gold was 100% what we would call 24 karat. Everybody else mixed all kinds of other things in with it. You might get a little silver mixed in it. You might even get a little bit of lead or copper or zinc or something mixed in there to kind of water it down. That's why we have 10 karat gold. You can go from 24 to 10. If you went other places in the world, you would not get pure gold. But in Laodicea, they were so rich, they had need of nothing. And you could be guaranteed if you went there, you would be in the most wealthy place that you could possibly be. They also had a medical school, and they were famous for a very specific eye salve that they could put on your eyes, that if you had a problem, like Paul is reported to, to have had a problem with his vision, it was known throughout the Middle East that you could go there, and you could literally be healed uh, of those eye problems. And so in all these churches, in this vein, in the practical sense, you can see how each one of them at that time had a very specific problem that Jesus was speaking to. Church still has that. There are specific churches with specific problems. There are some churches that aren't very loving. There are some churches that are downright feeble. There are some churches that don't keep the main thing the main thing. Amen? You can kind of see how, in a practical sense, all seven of these churches still exist in the world today. There's all kinds of churches that don't bear any fruit. There's churches that have become graveyards, basically, to the people who founded them. Connie's parents and I were talking about our old Baptist church that we attended together. It basically almost doesn't exist anymore. It grayed out and died out. It, it, it became a place, it was a tomb. Nobody goes there anymore. It stopped bearing fruit. Some of that outside influence, some of it from within. There was no outreach. Fearful church. You have all kinds of churches that don't do anything because they don't want to get anybody upset. There are pastors that don't preach the word because they don't want to get anybody upset. Well, we'll just stay right here. We'll just have our own little club. So the first possibility, just the practical application of all these things. The second possibility, you can kind of view these things, and this is the perennial view on each one of these churches. And again, very important. They all tie together. But here are the things that you could look at that kind of in those individual periods of time that these churches will represent over the entire church age, you can see a specific problem that was true during that period of time. In Ephesus, it was the issue of fundamentalism. Now, that is a hugely unappealing word in our society today. When you use the word fundamentalist or fundamentalism or fundamental, it's almost always in our context, in our day and time, used as a slur. Because it's somebody who's so hung up on the precision of doctrine that they lose love, right? They become legalistic. They're fundamentalists. And in that sense, fundamentalism is wrong. Because fundamentalism, if you're great on your doctrine and you don't have any love, you still have a problem. You're supposed to be good on both. You're supposed to have solid doctrine and tons of love. 
So that church was a, a church that was a fundamental church. It was one of those you probably would have heard great messages, but they wouldn't have been laced with love. And so what does he say to them? You've lost your first love. You've got your doctrine right, but everything else kind of up in the air. Church that was busy, no doubt. Uh, a church that outwardly probably someone would look at, man, oh, yeah, they're sound. That pastor, yeah, he preaches it. But nothing was going on. The Smyrna church, the problem that seems to come up in it was ritualism. When you look at it, it's actually called the synagogue of Satan in that city. There, there was a deliberate Judaizing of it. There was a, there was a tremendous focus on having the rituals right. Now again, I'm not against these things, but I want to draw your attention. If you notice, we don't have an altar up here. Not that they're bad, by the way, or wrong even. I, you may have noticed I don't ever wear robes. I don't own a collar. I, I, I don't even like to button the top collar on my shirts, much less wear a collar. Again, nothing hideously wrong with these things. There are wonderful people who wear those things every single day. Okay, Not saying that at all. But when you start to focus on the ritual instead of the Lord... When you, when you can go to a church and be denied communion because you haven't been baptized into the church yet, even though you're a believer, there's something seriously wrong with the ritual. You understand what I'm saying? That's not of the Lord. Anybody who names the name of the Christ has the obligation to go to the Lord's table to remember him. It's not something some priest can tell you you can or cannot do because you haven't signed a piece of paper that says you went to confession. That's ritualism, and it's wrong. So there's the ritualistic church, the church at Smyrna. There was a problem at Pergamos, and that was clericalism. And it basically is, it divides the church into classes of people. Well, we are the elders, and we are holy. And you are people, and you're not holy. So if you know anything about the elders, they're not holy either. There's one holy one. His name is Jesus. But, but you, get the, you get the clericalism, and then it's kind of like everybody gets their little name tag, and you go through this, and everybody's got a title in the church, and you've got a committee for everything, and it becomes who's in what group. And what happens eventually is people get frustrated because they don't ever think that they can attain to that particular group. And so that was the root of the Nicolaitan uh, problem that they had at that time, and it was actually addressed to the church at Ephesus as well. But they were setting up, in essence, a Christian caste system. It's just like, well, we're the really holy ones, and you're not. Alongside of that, very much like it, now you can kind of see why I think these last five all exist until the very last day in some way, shape, or form, is, is a word that you probably can't pronounce. It's sacerdotalism. What it simply, you can say it with me, sacerdotalism. Sacerdotalism. Okay. It's a rough word to say. I understand that. But what it really means is reliance upon a priest. That the priest has to do everything for you. You can't go to God without him. You, you can't have any relationship with the Lord without the priest. That the priest is the key to everything that you will ever have on this earth relating to your relationship with God. That, in fact, there is another mediator between God and man, except for the man, Christ Jesus. Which, by the way, your Bible says there is no mediator between God and man, except Christ Jesus. So any priest that tells you you can't have your sins forgiven unless a priest forgives them, is not telling you the truth. Your Bible doesn't say that. And, in fact, to put the priest ahead of the person in line to Jesus is actually sin. Because he who the Son has set free is free indeed. You have access to God the Father through Jesus the Son. And so this particular church was prone to this particular sin. And so the priest basically allowed you to approach God through them. That obviously is a big issue. It's still an issue today. And you know which major group of people on the face of the earth that is true about and interestingly enough, it wasn't like the priests were blameless themselves. Amen? It wasn't true during that period of time. It's sure not true today. 
That's why the Catholic Church to this right now has already paid out over 50 billion with a B dollars in claims of sex abuse. Most of it homosexual rape of young boys. You need that to get to God? I don't think so. It's a problem. That problem still exists in the world today. And again, there's all kinds of wonderful people in the Catholic Church who love Jesus and are going to heaven. Make sure that you understand that that's what I'm saying. Because that's what I'm saying. There are priests that love Jesus and are going to heaven. And they preach the word. I've heard them do it. But the church is a system. Sacerdotal. It even sounds bad, doesn't it? Dude, don't be so sacerdotal. Sardis. Big problem in our world today. Sardis was the liberal church. It was the libertine church. It bred liberalism. In other words, nothing mattered. Everything was okay. It was all permissible. You could go to church in the morning. You could go worship Baal in the afternoon and go have sex with the temple prostitutes later in the evening. It was all okay because they so focused on the grace of God that they forgot that the grace of God also leads us to holiness. They, they in essence, in, invented antinomian theology. That it doesn't matter what you do with your body because your body's part of this earth and just go ahead and sin it up. It's all okay. They were the libertines, the liberals. The church at Philadelphia existed uh, in revivalism. And we think of revival as being a good thing. But can I tell you this? Not every church service needs to be a revival. Right now, this would not be a good place to hold a revival because almost I know almost everyone in y'all are saved. So for me to sit up here and preach a gospel message about revival to each one of you would be absolutely ridiculous. It would absolutely do nothing for you. It wouldn't produce any fruit. If I read the word of God to you, you'd get something out of that. But for everything to be about a revival or revival thinking does not do what the rest of the church is supposed to do. We have to solidly teach the word in good doctrine. We need to have the whole broad base of scripture from the holiness of God all the way to the last days. We've got to have all of it. So if you get focused in on one part of what God's Word teaches, then you are not getting the full counsel of God's Word. So you can have churches that are big on revival. I went to a little small Southern Baptist church. It's actually kind of funny for quite a while. Little tiny church. Nobody went there because every meeting was a revival meeting. If, you, there, was, if there was ten people, there was going to be a revival right there. And our, our pastor would come out, and he'd have on the sweat rag around his neck, and he'd get worked up, and hands would go up in the air, and he'd be dabbing the sweat off, and there's somebody in here who's going to hell! Y'all be going to hell! I'm like, well, I don't think so. I think I know Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I'm pretty sure I'm not going there. But every message was like that. It was like there had to be a revival. There needed to be a revival right here. Now, is there room for revival? You better believe it. Charles Wesley, all the great revivals, the great awakening, all those wonderful things. But the church shouldn't stay there. We still need to do the other works that God sent us to this world to do. So there was a problem with even a, even a good thing. And the church can mess up good things. Amen? And then finally, the church at Laodicea, in this sense, perennially, the things that would happen in certain ages of the church, you see in the 1800s, Everything was about a revival. John and Charles Wesley are turning over in their grave right now about what's happened to the Methodist Church. Great revival through them. But it's lost now because they did not cling to the word. You go to a Methodist church, you're liable to find a, a lesbian as the pastor of that church right now. Trying to tell you, well, that part of the Bible doesn't matter. It does matter, because God said so. If I can't trust him on these things, then I can't trust him on anything. If he didn't mean what he said about Sodom and Gomorrah, then I don't think he believed I should believe him about what he said about grace and faith. Because it's the same Bible that teaches both truths. So you can have revivalism. You can see people get saved, but if you don't continue to feed them, cause them to grow, to go out into the world, to be a healthy part of the body of Christ... You aren't getting the mark. And then finally, the church at Laodicea, we see materialism. This may well be the church's long-playing, most perennial problem, but it absolutely is the problem of our day. Amen? 
When you look at the church, I don't think there's anything that keeps the church from being effective like materialism does. There are a lot of people who don't even go to church because they're too worried about their material things. There are people who are so worried about their material things that they don't support the church. And so the church ends up being weakened because people are more worried about their stuff than they are it all being God stuff. And so when you end up in that place, then the enemy can seduce the church away to follow after the false god, which is mammon. Is that not exactly what Jesus said would happen? He said, no man can serve two gods. Can't serve two masters. He's going to love one and hate the other, or hate the one and love the other. And then he gave us the example. You cannot serve God and mammon. Money, prosperity, stuff, material things. Why did he say that? Because it's a huge problem, and it's a gigantic problem for the church today. Can I remind you, the first century church didn't have a bank account. First century church didn't have a building. First century church didn't have houses, didn't have cars, didn't have any of those stuff, any of those things. And yet millions upon millions upon millions of people came to faith in Jesus Christ through a very simple gospel message, through very simple people, through very simple means. Now, having said that, we live in a world where buildings like this are necessary. We're not going to be meeting out in the parking lot right now. It's a little chilly out there. So praise God we do have it a little easier in our world in our day and time. But that's not a reason to rest on your laurels. And it's certainly not a reason for us to say, look, we're rich and we have need of nothing. And yet that would be the mark against Laodicea. So there's the second group. And the final is equally as easy uh, to take a look at. And again, keep these things in mind. So now prophetically, the, the periods of time in church history that you can say, yeah, that was that church history period. You can go back to that table that I showed you with everybody from Raymond Druck to Tim LaHaye. Ephesus was that period of time that's post-apostolic. In other words, the period of time right after the apostles. In other words, that was a time when the church first was full of love. Remember the early church? What was it said about them? They sold all they had and they dwelled together. There was this crazy, you know, it's like hippie world. I, I, you know, the first century church, if you were to look at them, you would have said, those guys are stoners, they're hippies or something. You know, they all, they, they live in Volkswagen vans and they drive around everywhere and they, they have everything in common and, they, and nobody owns anything. That was the first century church. And so that church was originally very, very, very loving. They had to be to survive. And then all of a sudden, they bump into the persecution, the second group, the group at Smyrna. And all of a sudden, well, I don't really want to be persecuted, so I'm going to leave the first love because I'm getting persecuted for it. And now all of a sudden you have the next group of people, the next time period, the prophetic part of the persecuted church. And there was a period of time, about 350 years, to where basically if you were a Christian, it meant that you were either going to live as a second, third, or fourth class citizen or be killed for your faith. That's what happened under the Roman Caesars. And again, we'll look at these things in their entirety as we go through these churches one by one. The church at Pergamos was, was the, what we would call the patronized church. It, it brought into the, into focus this, this church that had kind of, you know, well, we'll just pay honor to Rome and we'll make sure they're okay with us and we'll kind of do things their way. And if they want us to make a donation to the Roman government, you know, to build a bridge or whatever, we'll just give it to them. You know, we don't want to, you know, we don't twist anybody's arm here. So they became patrons of Rome. And so that group actually became almost a satellite church uh, of the Roman church. And before you knew it, they weren't allowed to preach proper doctrine. They weren't allowed to say anything that was against Rome. If there was a sin problem, zip it. Couldn't happen. And then that would go from that church to the papal church, to where there would actually be a state church. You see, at first Rome just allowed lots of churches, and then it went all the way to, ah, just like in England. You were a member of the Church of England or the Anglican Church. That was your options, period. That all started during that Thyatiran period to where 
the, what we know today is the Roman Catholic Church came onto the scene, and now there is a simply a, this is the way it is. And in fact, in Europe, if you know your European history, there was a time of almost 500 years known as the Dark Ages, to where the church ruled Europe. Not the kings, not the queens, the church ruled Europe. And in fact, the most powerful people in Europe were in fact the bishops of the Catholic Church. Connie and I did quite a bit of touring around. We lived there. Now, if you go to the church in, in Salzburg, you can still see the cannonballs from the peasant war where they impacted the walls of the bedroom of Beetroot, the bishop of Salzburg. His bedroom was bigger than this entire church building. He kept, kept a whole floor of concubines below him. He could do no wrong. He ruled Salzburg province from inside of his fortress, fortress home, Salzburg. He was the king. There was a period of time in church history to where the Roman Catholic Church basically ruled the known world at the time. And then we have the Protestant Church, the Church of the Reformation. Luther, Calvin, all these great saints of old. But eventually there became warfare there too, didn't it? culminating with all kinds of things going on in Europe, which caused, in essence, the pilgrims, the Puritans, to leave Denmark, travel to England, to the United States of America. There was a period of time when the Protestant church was engaged in things that were not right. During that period of the papal church, you had the Crusades. Don't think that was a winner, do you? I'm pretty sure that God's never told us to go out and force people to convert to Christianity by threatening to kill them. I'm pretty sure that's not God's will. It seems to be Allah's will, but it, I can tell you for a fact it's not God's will. So the Protestant church had its problems, all kinds of division. What started off as something wonderful. How can you not read the early works of Martin Luther and John Calvin and just go, man, these guys loved the Lord. It all started, by the way, trying to come against the period before that, the papal church said, look, we're not paying for our sins to be removed. Okay? No more indulgences. Period. This isn't going to happen. And so what started out as good travels for a period of time in the church age and then itself becomes part of the problem. Each one of these things has this part too. And you had the church of Philadelphia, kind of the, I just like to call it the practical church because this is kind of the church that, like the, the beginnings of the non-denominational church. It was just church. You could go to that church. It was a church, matter of fact, J. Vernon McGee, Church of the Open Door, right? You got these guys that, that founded churches just basically, Calvary Chapel started in this vein. Just come as you are. Some of the old guys didn't like the fact that the hippies were coming with their dirty feet and stuff, so Chuck said, let's turn the carpet out. We'll solve that problem. No dirty carpet. <laughs> Bingo, done. There's, there's been this Philadelphian church to where the church got tired of the papalism, got tired of the Protestantism, said, let's just do church. Don't really care what we call it. And from that grew the Friends Church and the Amish Church, the Quakers. You still see the evidence of the Quakers today. If you've ever been to Azusa Pacific University, it's found in the Quaker tradition. Got tired of church. We're going to have house church. We'll just get together. We'll live in our little, we'll just be Jesus. Pretty good idea. But then it got so much Jesus that you couldn't get in. And if you go to Amish country today, you ain't welcome. We love the Lord, but not you. And that's the truth. You are not welcome to enter into any of their church services. You can't join with them. They don't want you taking pictures, none of that kind of stuff. There was a period of time when that was very prevalent. And then the final church, and I believe it's just simply the present-day church, the church at Laodicea. It's not hot, it's not cold, it's worldly, it's wealthy, it's riddled with compromise, cults everywhere. It's like when somebody, I have lots of people that question me about Christian scientists. And it sounds good. Christian science? You mean I can be a Christian and be really smart too? Well, that's not exactly what it means. Because they're not Christians, and they're not scientists either. It's kind of a blend of those things. Yeah, you can get the Christ ideal. 
You see, there's a lot of groups like that in the, in the present day church. Very lukewarm. Not very Christ. Not very scientific. We got all kinds of churches that are more concerned about finding a cure for AIDS than they are for finding a cure for sin. That's not what the church is for. It's a good goal, by the way. I would love to find a cure for AIDS. I wish nobody would ever pass away ever again from AIDS. But when 86% of the people on this earth who have AIDS have AIDS because of homosexual sex, we kind of know what the problem is. The transmission problem is pretty, pretty easy to discern. You see, but the church wants to get involved in these peripheral issues because it makes us look like we're compassionate and caring about what everybody else cares about. The church is supposed to care about people's souls. The church is supposed to care about sharing the love of God and teaching the truth. Those things. The rest of that, it's all good. Yes, we want to feed people who are poor. That's an important part, but it's only a part. It should never become the mission of the church. There are parachurch organizations. Wonderful. Go support Fred Jordan missions. It's an awesome thing. But if your only mission is feeding the poor, then that doesn't make you an effective church. An effective church has to preach the gospel. An effective church has to send out missionaries. An effective church should be feeding the poor. It's part of what a church does, not all of what a church does. And so that lukewarm church kind of loses its way. Don't know what church is supposed to be. And so these things, now you can store all of that, and we'll take each church one at a time and look at it in its entirety in these three, three areas so that we can see it in the past, in the present, and in the future. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time tonight. Pray that you would bless us and anoint us and touch us and Help us to stand for truth, Lord. It is absolutely the truth that sets men free. It's not a lie told kindly. And so, Lord, we ask that you would make us bearers of the truth. Bless us as we go our way. Encourage us, strengthen us. Help us in our weaknesses. Cause us to be your mouthpiece in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.